0: Elena Kagan this summer says that the Supreme Court has been damaging its legitimacy. Is she right? In my view, yes. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this subscriber-only episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about the state of Supreme Court media coverage. Almost exactly one year ago, the beginning of the 6-3 era— the hosts talked about how the legal media establishment was failing to accurately depict the court's extreme rightward shift. Since that episode aired, the steady stream of plainly partisan decisions coming out of the court have forced some commentators to reassess their assumptions.
1: So this is something I never expected to worry about in the United States, the risk that we could have election subversion, that the the person who gets the most votes won't be declared the winner of the election.
0: Nevertheless, the ecosystem of thought leaders who propped up the court's legitimacy for so long remains in place, and your hosts are here, as ever, to yank their heads out of the sand. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5
2: to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have created our civil rights. Like inflation has created the S and P 500. All right. mm. <laughs> I'm Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon.
3: I hope our listeners don't care about that. Metaphor. How's your portfolio doing? You? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <this> is a- <laughs> I'm
2: trying to slowly transition us into being a stocks and business podcast. <laughs>
3: yeah. Okay. So Rhiannon out then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if you don't, if you don't want that money, sure. But we're going to get those crypto sponsors soon, and that's when that's when it really takes off for us. A couple of housekeeping notes up top. Rhiannon live from our studio in New York City. Yeah. Pro- prologue.
3: Hello. Hi.
2: Neither Michael nor I are in studio, but still nice to see you there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Peter lives in this city. I'm in the city. The only time we're so busy with the podcast that the only time we see each other is podcast stuff and we're not still not even together or hanging out.
2: That's yeah. true. The other <laughs> note is I'm a little bit congested, a little bit sick. I want to warn everyone because I went uh, away for the weekend and party a little bit. And I know everyone thinks like, oh, Peter probably does tons of drugs and just parties with hot chicks all the time and he can hold it together. But actually, no. Uh, if I do one drug, I will be sick all week. And that's what <laughs> happened. We're getting
3: old. We're feeling those yeah. years.
2: Yeah. <laughs> this is a special episode about the state of what you might call the legal discourse ecosystem. We are now in the wake of one of the most impactful Supreme Court terms in history, where the court's conservative supermajority asserted itself and pushed its far-right views across a spectrum of legal issues. We started this podcast because we felt the discourse surrounding the Supreme Court, from media coverage to academic discussions, was failing to grasp the true nature of the institution. We understood the court to be political and ideological, and the conservatives on the court to be the direct output of an orchestrated right-wing legal movement. People within the legal media ecosystem, from journalists and pundits to legal academics, did not talk about the court like that. They talked about the court as if it were a legitimate and apolitical institution, And moreover, their livelihoods were often wrapped up in the idea of the court as a legitimate and a political institution.
1: Right, and so the worldviews of these actors are important because they shape political discourse, right? They put out op-eds, they appear on cable news, they publish law review articles, and all of these things influence both public and elite opinion. And the failure of these actors to understand the nature of the court has led to a lot of people getting blindsided by this past term. But given the court's recent rulings, especially the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we've started to see some legal academics and legal journalists reckon with their misunderstandings and adjust the way they talk about the court. So we wanted to discuss the current state
2: of the legal discourse. So. Let's take a a little step back in time here. The first term with the current six to three court started in October 2020 and ended in June 2021. And by some measures, it wasn't very eventful. Um, The big hot button issues like abortion and gun rights weren't before the court. Uh, They didn't overturn the presidential election. uh, And when they were confronted with more controversial items like conflicts between religious liberty, and LGBT rights, they forged a slightly more moderate path than they arguably could have. What emerged from that term was a dominant media narrative that the fears of a runaway conservative court were unfounded, and that what we actually had was a 3-3-3 court with a block of liberals, a block of conservatives, and a block of moderates. Uh, For example, Joan Biskupic, who covers the court for CNN, wrote and spoke about this, about the 333 court. Uh, Politico published opinion pieces about it. The Economist wrote about it. All sort of up and down legal journalism. People were talking about the surprise moderation of the court. And uh, the overall tone was just sort of like chiding people who had been concerned about the court uh, as if they were sort of unserious or doomsayers. Right. And maybe that they didn't understand the law. Like the the law is very like serious and inherently moderate.
3: Yeah. And just to be specific, this narrative, right, was that there were three more moderate conservatives in the center of the court. And that would be Chief Justice John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. That somehow these three were moderating the the more conservative justices on the court. Mm-hmm. Right,
1: the excesses of the extreme Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito. Yeah, right.
2: So at the time, we did an episode arguing that the framing of the court as moderate was both incorrect and dangerous. We don't need to go over like exactly why we thought that. Because the last term proved our point for us, I think. Mm -hmm.
1: Don't hear much about the 3-3 court anymore.
2: (laughs) Right. You know, after the jurisprudence about COVID regulations, about the administrative state, gun rights, religion in schools, abortion, no serious person is arguing that we're dealing with a moderate court of any type. But it's worth thinking about how and why the mainstream media got this so wrong just a year and a half ago.
1: Yeah. And we want to talk a little bit about culture in political and legal media. You could write an entire book about this stuff. In fact, there have been books written about it. James Fallows, Breaking the News, I think is a particularly standout example in the genre. But going through some of the big issues, uh, one is there's sort of uh, what I think is a crisis of credentialism in legal academia That is reflected in legal media as well, where where you went to school and what your resume looks like uh, is a major major determinant of your future, both in the courts, in the academy, and in legal media. If you're not going to one of the elite tier law schools, you're not going to be getting any number of Quote unquote prestigious positions. Right. That's an issue, though, because these institutions derive their legitimacy from the court itself, right? There's this sort of self reinforcing cycle here where, you know, the professors that are so great that make Harvard law so impressive, the reason they're so great is because they clerked at the Supreme Court because their articles are cited by the Supreme Court, they're considered influential because of their connection to the Supreme Court, their ability to place clerks uh, in prestigious judges and clerkships, including at the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, that means they have an interest in the court itself, in its reputation, right? And so their students, their friends, the, the people who end up covering the court are part of the same thing, right? If you are a journalist covering the court, or if you have op-ed space in the Washington Post or the New York Times talking about the court, it's a pretty good chance you clerked for, if not a Supreme Court justice, a prestigious circuit court of appeals judge. Yeah. Again, your credibility is tied to the prestige and credibility of the system writ large, right? Like your entire expertise is derived from the assumption that what the court does is complicated is difficult for the layperson to understand. And only with a lot of experience and insider knowledge can you sort of disentangle it all for the reader.
2: I was just engaging a little bit online with some election law professors who are sort of trying to downplay. The import of Moore v. Harper, which is the independent state legislature case, which we've discussed before. And we don't have to go into it, but basically, I, it really feels like, what's the point of being an election law expert if the best explanation of where everything's going to sort out is basically, well, what's good for Republicans, roughly speaking, versus what's right. good for Democrats, right. right? You don't need an expert yeah. to weigh in to figure yeah. that stuff out. Right. And those people need you to need experts, right? Right. So they have to envision a world where their expertise is useful.
1: Right. This also sort of engenders like uh, a sense of clubbiness where like oftentimes these people are friends, right? Like uh, we've talked about Noah Feldman, the Harvard Law Prof, on this podcast before. He's ostensibly liberal, but sort of infamously wrote an editorial saying Amy Coney Barrett would be a great Supreme Court Justice, even if he doesn't agree with her, you know, and they like clerked at the Supreme Court at the same time. They know each other. They're friendly, right? Like, oftentimes, what you find is the people writing about and covering the court are friends with the people who are working at the court. And they're all friends with each other. They're all talking to each other. And so there's a sense of not just groupthink about what's important and what isn't, but also like, yeah, you know, they're not so bad. They're my bud. They bought me lunch that one time. Like, you know, it it doesn't really lend itself to clear-eyed thinking about the stakes involved. There's also a desire for like newness and newsiness, right? Like nobody wants to write the dog bites man story like every week, right? But that's A lot of that is what the Supreme Court is these days, is very much a dog bites man story. The conservatives doing precisely what they were put on there to do. You know, the outcomes of these cases, to the extent there's like any mystery, it's usually like, well, will they go only seventy percent of the way there or will they go the full, you know, conservative freak? Hundred percent of the way mm-hmm. there, right? Like we already know who's winning and losing. It's just a question of how extreme the rationale is. And so, like this desire for newsiness leads to like this need for a different take, a new way to think about things, which leads to idiotic things. Like, oh, maybe the conservatives aren't aren't actually that conservative. Maybe the three three court will be uh, what what
2: we're talking about for the next few years. Right. Um, It's just it's some like some editor being like, we need a new hook, right? This is the same old shit. Yeah, exactly. Give me me something Um, interesting. And you have to you have to bullshit some, you know, faux interesting angle. Right.
1: Something we see a lot in political coverage that I think infects this is like the both sides inclinations, which is like, I think, very much like an ideological bias that whether or not reporters recognize it, this desire to create an equivalence between Democrats and Republicans, between conservatives and liberals, a desire for some sort of balance. Because I think for one thing, it in a lot of ways absolves the journalist of any sort of like interrogatory responsibility, right? And they don't have to interrogate the substance. They just have to talk yeah. about this like right. competition between two competing Groups, mm-hmm. right, and it's more like a sports coverage where you're telling, you know, the play-by-play than like some sort of detailed analysis of like the offensive line's blocking scheme or or whatever. Like that's a, a level of analysis that they don't want to get into. But here, it does them a disservice, and it does their readers a disservice, yeah, because there isn't a competition right this is the harlem globe trotters versus the washington generals it's a 6-3 supermajority conservative activists are bringing like extremely fringe cases before the court and the only quote unquote interesting things happening are amongst a handful of you know two or three conservative justices yeah. finding their limits on specific issues as to like where they're willing to go.
2: Yeah. And, you know, before we go on, it's worth noting, you know, we're sort of putting in this framing of like the three 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 court, which was the discussion in like summer twenty twenty one. But this is a long standing problem, right? Absolutely. You saw it in like the coverage of whether RBG should retire yes. in twenty thirteen mm-hmm. and twenty fourteen, right? You saw it in coverage of like Merrick Garland and Neil Gorsuch and like, you know, that whole debacle where the media didn't quite know what to do with it, you know? like You have politics being played with this institution that the media has sort of decided is not a political one. How do you address that, right? Caught them off guard. So this is really just sort of like one of the more recent manifestations. And what's really unique about it is that they were just proven wrong so quickly and so completely.
3: Yeah, yeah. And moving to them getting proven wrong. You know, there's a lot of interplay when you're talking about the legal media. I think there's a lot of interplay and not even behind the scenes because academics are are really writing about what's happening in the court and supplying legal media pieces. But you have to talk about the, the interplay between legal media and legal academia, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Mark Joseph Stern, after this past term, so Roe v. Wade has been overruled, right? We kind of just made it through an extremely controversial, very, very conservative Supreme Court term. Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate wrote this piece about law professors, you know, in the wake of Dobbs, who now have to contend with this new iteration new to them new iteration of the Supreme Court right that they don't just have to adjust their own understandings of how the court operates you know they have to undo a lifetime of assumptions about how the court works but they're also having to adjust their pedagogy like how and what they teach students about the Supreme Court and basically what this piece shows is that many liberal professors are like having a meltdown all of a sudden. Right. Like this is really new to them. And all of a sudden they don't know what quite what to say and what to teach about the Supreme Court. There are some really good quotes in this piece. And I kind of just want to share a couple to explain like the state of things that Mark Joseph Stern is pointing out. One law professor says when the Dobbs decision came down on June 24th, she got a migraine for the first time in a decade the image of the court as a majestic guardian of liberty was, she concluded, a complete lie. And it wasn't just about her own personal feelings either. Now she had to teach her students about the work of an institution that made her sick to contemplate. So look, I get it. I felt real sick after Roe was was overturned, also, right? I'm I'm with you, girl. Yeah. But for a, a law professor, right? Somebody whose job it is, whose life work is about analyzing what comes out of the Supreme Court and then teaching that to students. This kind of real shakeup all of the sudden in their
2: worldview. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be caught off guard right. like that, right? Right. Mm-hmm. First of all, to say you got a migraine on the day the decision came down. It was leaked six weeks earlier. <laughs> <You> didn't... <laughs> I didn't even think about that. You didn't get the migraine then? She was like, well, I'm sure this will turn out okay. Yeah. And it, re- <laughs> it comes down six weeks later. And yeah. And she's like, oh, my fucking head. Right, <laughs> But yeah, there's just something about being distressed about the court is not weird, but to be like shocked at this stage, Mm -hmm. you just haven't been paying attention for at least half a decade, maybe longer.
1: And obviously, we're not criticizing Mark. He's a friend of the podcast and very much shares our worldview about um, what the Supreme Court is.
3: Yeah. And sort of the thesis question of this piece is captured by this quote. Now law professors are faced with a quandary. How and why should you teach law to students while the Supreme Court openly changes the meaning of the Constitution to align with the GOP? This other law professor says, quote, it's hard to think about your own profession, the things you were taught, the things you believed in, abruptly coming to an end in rapid succession. It's hard to ask a law professor to dismantle all the training they had. It's a difficult emotional, psychological transformation process. It's not easy to upend your life's work and not trust the Supreme Court. It might not be easy for you. I'm finding it real easy.
2: (laughs) Even the framing of this is just like so naive, like. He's literally saying, well, all of these things are coming to an end. And it's like, no, it's not that it's coming to an end. It's that you've been wrong the whole time.
3: Exactly. exactly. Your
1: illusions are
3: coming right. to an yes. end. Right. Yes. Right. Your, Your
2: mistaken understanding of what the court is, is now coming to an end. But it never worked like that and it never will. Uh, there's something so bizarre about the way that these people are processing it. And like they're supposed to be experts like these are the people that know the most about this stuff.
3: Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And even professors who were sort of skeptical about the idea that the Supreme Court was getting more conservative, was getting more extreme. There's a quote in the article where a law professor says, quote, I have generally up until now resisted the cynicism of the new legal realists that the Supreme Court. That's us. Mm -hmm. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that the Supreme Court isn't a court, it's just a policy council. I want my students to believe that legal argumentation, precedent, facts, and doctrine matter. In the aftermath of this term, though, quote, it's become increasingly difficult to deny that major constitutional decisions are almost purely about politics. Welcome to the party, my friend. Like...
2: Right. <laughs> or just like the real world. Yeah. I don't Like, I want my yeah. students to believe that legal argumentation... Precedent facts and doctrine matter. It's like, well, they don't. So why would you want (laughs) your students to believe? They don't right now.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, So, you know, look, I'm not interested in being like, we told you so to every law professor who feels like this piece says, like shock and grief over the past term. I obviously feel those things, too. Right. But but what I do think is that the piece does a good job of highlighting what dominant teachings, dominant narratives about the Supreme Court have been up to this point especially in law school and among legal scholars. And that then filters into legal media and what the public is told about what's happening at the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. In the legal academy, the resistance to understanding law as politics runs extremely deep, even with liberal professors, but maybe even especially with liberal law professors, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, yeah, this last term was super bad, but were y'all all sleeping for Bush v. Gore? Like, how do you Mm -hmm. not explain, understand that decision more than 20 years ago as political, right? Right. Learning about the law and teaching the law has, has extremely problematic retrospective framing, I think. You're always looking to the past. You are never looking to the future. You're almost never discussing the future development of law, how the law is built, how social, political, academic, economic movements shape the law, what the law could be. Like, all you do is just look at cases that have already been decided and you surmise what the law is right now. So that, like, naturally means that cases like Brown v. Board, Miranda v. Arizona, Roe v. Wade, Obergefell, those become the ceiling for you. It's just like, these are the best things the court has ever done and not, how could this be built on? How do we make this the floor, not the ceiling? How are these legal principles maybe in danger? Hello?
2: Right. It's viewing the study of law as if it's archaeological as if you're just trying to uncover these truths rather than sort of build a better world, right? Create structures and institutions that can build a more just world.
1: Right. There's rarely any sort of analysis of like the social conditions that gave rise to certain cases like the civil rights movement, creating the conditions for the brown people. Right. And so there's this complete detachment of Our understanding of the law from political power, social power, and how social change is created in in this country.
3: So what you get with a legal media that's like closely intertwined with the legal academy is a reproduction of those narratives. And you get shock and people reeling about what to say and teach about the law today because, frankly, you were paying attention to the wrong thing this whole time.
1: Yeah. So one of the ways that this sort of resistance to reality ends up showing itself, revealing itself, is that liberal law professors don't understand the role their writings play in politics. Yes. There is give and take between like conservative legal academics, and conservative judges, and conservative politicians. And I think all of those players sort of understand their relationship and like conservative legal academics understand that part of what they do is create pretexts for judges and politicians and create arguments that the judges and politicians can wield in order to pursue their ideological goals, right And they all understand themselves as engaged. they're all you know in the same boat rowing in the same direction. And liberal academics, I think oftentimes, reject the notion that they're even in the same boat as politicians and in liberal judges let alone that they're all you know on the same team and rowing in the same direction they conceive of this the, the whole legal discourse as something entirely separate something that doesn't leave the ivory tower right doesn't leave academia or to the extent it does mm-hmm. only in a very sort of attenuated way
0: right
2: Purely academic in both the literal sense and the colloquial sense. Right, exactly, exactly. We're all
1: just chatting here, right? Like not too far from just like a dorm room bull session, right? Where you're just like hashing out ideas with someone Mm -hmm. uh, you like and respect, but don't necessarily agree with or, or something. They do not understand their position in power structures, right? In political power structures, Right. That means they don't really understand themselves as like propagandists. And I think, you know, if you told a law professor who was writing, you know, something in the Washington Post that they were engaging in propaganda, they would, you know, liberal law professor, I think would be pretty offended. Conservatives, for the most part, I think do understand this and they take the opportunities they have to push an agenda, right? And sometimes that makes them look clownish and it makes liberal law professors roll their eyes at some of the stuff they say because it seems so ridiculous to anyone who understands the doctrine or whatever. Uh, But they understand that they are helping create the social conditions for their desired legal outcomes to be realized down the line. And I don't think liberal law professors understand that. And I think two examples of that recently are what Peter was just saying with election law professors who are downplaying the dangers of cases before the Supreme Court this term.
2: Right. That discussion was about Moore v. Harper, uh, a case that involves the potential for state legislatures to override the popular will in federal elections.
1: Which is creating, helping create the conditions for a future coup, right? Right. By downplaying the dangers, you are speaking to other elites on the left, Democrats, in office, right, who listen to you, their staff, other law professors, people in the solicitor's general's office, and, and all that, and you are telling them this case isn't as dangerous as you think, right. right, which in turn is making it easier for the court to take an extreme position in the case, which... In turn is making it easier for the next legalistic coup to succeed, right? And and they don't understand themselves as playing a role where they have a job, a pro-democracy job to do, right? To raise the alarm, to make it difficult for the Supreme Court To endorse the independent state legislature doctrine in any way, right? This term, Mm -hmm. that that's their job, that that's an important role they have in political discourse. They don't understand that, right? And, And you see that too in like my old administrative law prof, Jed Sugarman, posted an article in The Atlantic talking about, you know, as someone who supports student debt cancellation, the administration's legal reasoning is a mess. Look, it's not even his area of expertise. I've seen experts who really disagree with this analysis, but of course, that article is already appearing in briefs for people trying to challenge the law. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, exactly.
1: Conservative activist groups have been challenging the policy. And what do you know? Conservatives are citing Sugarman's article in their briefs. And if you purport to support this policy and you are being used in support of ending the policy, right? Like you have completely misunderstood your role, your platform, and the way you can shape political and legal discourse. Right. They're not understanding or refusing to accept that they are an important part of a legal movement, right? A liberal legal movement. And they're studious attention to being honest and doctrinal and all that, all that ends up doing is being weaponized by the right Right. and feeds into right-wing propaganda.
2: Right. So let's talk about like the big mainstream players for a second. Um, So, you know, after Dobbs and the last term generally, it becomes pretty much impossible to deny that the court is aggressively reactionary and far to the right of the American public. And so there's a corresponding shift in media coverage. And you see the idea of the moderate court fade away completely, and you start to see some mainstream journalism that was openly critical of the court. The New York Times editorial board published a piece just a couple of weeks ago titled The Supreme Court Isn't Listening and It's No Secret Why?, The piece essentially pointed out that the court is facing a legitimacy crisis on the basis that historically the court's opinions have mapped pretty closely onto popular political opinion, and you're currently seeing a divergence with confidence of the court at historic lows and the court considerably to the right of the average person. The Washington Post editorial board published a piece called One Way to Fix the Supreme Court, which advocated for term limits for justices. Notably, they did this as an express alternative to expanding the court. Mm -hmm. But it's advocacy for reform nonetheless. And we've seen a peppering of comparable opinion pieces in both papers and similar papers. On the other side, you have the Wall Street Journal editorial board, which has uh, Mm -hmm. over the past few years frequently come to the defense of the court. After Dobbs, they published a victory lap piece saying like, Mm Yeah, this is a great win for originalists. When Kagan made statements indicating the court might lose its legitimacy in September, they published a piece expressing their displeasure, right? Just like aghast that a sitting justice would question the institution. Quick note, uh, in researching this, I uh, learned that the Wall Street Journal Style Guide apparently directs that the term high court be capitalized. In any context? Oh, God. (laughs)
3: This fucking circle jerk.
2: Uh, Absolutely perverted editorial decision.
3: Uh, (laughs) It's an affront to God. It
2: really lends to, like, the dystopian vibe of reading the Wall Street Journal, you know? Mm. yeah. If I had to guess, I'd bet it's recent. I bet sometime in the past, like, three years, they were like, start capitalizing that. Show some fucking respect. (laughs) (laughs) That's
3: right. That's right. Yeah, there was also this CNN panel Recently about the Supreme Court, you know, Fareed Zakaria did like a special report, a special episode or whatever on CNN called Supreme Power. I think this aired the night before the term started just a few weeks ago. Okay, so I I thought actually I watched this shit. I thought it was going to be a panel, but it was like distinct interviews with a few so-called Supreme Court experts, and then clips mm. from the interviews were like interspersed throughout, in between Zakaria like narrating or whatever. Mm. Noah Feldman is mm. is there is interviewed. You know, we've talked mm. about him a lot. If you're a new listener, Noah Feldman is a Harvard Law professor. He clerked for Souter. He Wrote the fucking Iraqi Constitution. Uh, he, he writes it's such a l- ridiculous, fact. <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous he he writes a lot about the court and is sort of like a media darling in these spaces, right? Like it, it the quintessential example of what we're talking about in terms of the legal academy. Talking to the Supreme Court, talking to legal media, and that this it's all this kind of like insular, incestuous group, right? I hate this guy so fucking much. His Wikipedia, uh, sorry, his Wikipedia says he's fluent in English, Hebrew, Arabic, and French. He also claims to speak conversational Korean and to read Greek, Latin, German, Italian, Spanish, and Aramaic. Just, just fuck off. Just <laughs> fuck off, Noah Feldman. I'll tell you what language he's fluent in white. That's what he's, that's what he's fucking <laughs> fluent in. He's an absolute <laughs> fucking joke. Anyways, his whole presentation—this is about the CNN show. I'm sorry. Um, his whole presentation, his vocal affect, the basic bitch-ass comments he makes that suit whatever audience he's in front of—it's just so gross. He talks about
2: right. in this. I get a real Patrick Bateman vibe from it you <laughs> hear him. Talk. Yeah,
3: yeah, I get that, but I also get just like fucking clown, right? Like. Right. He says that Chief Justice John Roberts did everything he could to save Roe v. Wade. Mm. <laughs> what evidence do you have, you fucking loser? I get I get so mad. Anyways, they also talked to Nina Totenberg, who we are going to talk about a little bit more later in the episode.
2: Maybe a lot more.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Nina Totenberg, longtime NPR reporter on the Supreme Court. She, in this CNN show, she says the usual fluff, like, the early 1900s were a time when the Supreme Court really didn't care about the little guy. Girl, did they ever? Mm-hmm. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> they also talked to a crazy person from the Judicial Crisis Network, which is a oh, conservative yeah. outfit that puts, you know, millions of dollars into conservative judicial appointments.
2: Mm-hmm. Who was it?
3: I don't fucking know. It was a lady.
2: <laughs> Carrie Severino.
3: Yes. Probably. Yeah, Carrie Severino, I think. Yeah. yeah, the
1: head of the Judicial Crisis Network, by the way, not a lawyer, the person right. who advised Donald Trump to hold on to all those classified documents and was like, "Fuck the National Archives, yep.
3: you do you, buddy." Yeah. <laughs> you you. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're saying really stupid things in this in this show, like John Roberts bent over backwards to save Roe v. Wade. He he. Again, <laughs> what are you talking? about. (laughs) Sorry, Rachel, for the levels on that. Okay, so, you know, dumb commentary aside, the program itself, it's not like awful, like for someone who doesn't know much about the Supreme Court at all, but like might have a sense that something spooky is happening over there. It's at least contending with the Supreme Court as a political body. Right. Like the show Mm -hmm. Zakaria goes over like a, a history of the New Deal court when when FDR threatened to pack the court talks about the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo and their massive influence. These are slightly new, relatively recent topics to be discussing with respect to the Supreme Court. So you know, I, I did sense in watching it like a, a tiny shift in in media representation of what's going on, which is you know, mm-hmm. uh, something different, I think, than what you would have seen even last term. But you
1: can still see the constraints, right? Yes, exactly. Like the the range of ideology they're offering there are conservative nutbag, right? Like absolute conservative free. Right, like
2: would have overturned the election. Right, right. right. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like somebody who would have voted to install Donald Trump as president in January 2021, (laughs) Nina Totenberg, a a centrist, and then Noah Feldman on the left, who is like barely... (laughs) Barely on the left, okay. right? Like an actual, an actual critic of the court, a critic of its power, a critic of the institution in general. Pff, no way, right? Like, right. No right. way, right. never, right. never.
2: Yeah. yeah, I, I will say I want to point out one other sort of notable trend before we move on, which is I do think that like Trump's legal problems have influenced the public's view of courts and the law, Mm. like the debacle with the stolen documents and the (laughs) hack judge, Judge Cannon, who everyone sort of understands is just doing everything she can Mm -hmm. for Donald Trump. Right.
1: Future Chief Justice Eileen Cannon. (laughs) Yeah,
2: right. (laughs) I think that there's like a toxicity to Trump and he sort of infects these institutions as he touches them, right? And people sort of perceive that. And, you know, you can sort of immediately see when you're looking at that situation, well, that judges is, is a fucking hack, right? Right. And I, th- I think that that has a broader impact. It's, it's easier once you see it in certain contexts to take a step back and say, well, this exists all across the board, all in courts, all across mm-hmm. the country. Yeah. Right. And it really does yeah. sort of undermine respect for courts and legal institutions. And I think you're starting to see that kind of creep up into main- mainstream coverage a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Should we talk about Nina Totenberg?
3: Nina, oh. Nina, Nina.
1: <laughs> so Nina Totenberg, as I said before, I think has sort of reputation for being somewhat uh, centrist, you know, maybe unbiased. She covers the Supreme Court for NPR, which makes her, gets her like a very prominent, you know, place in Supreme Court media. In Absolutely.
3: General. Has been reporting on the Supreme Court since the 1970s.
1: Yeah. She's just like a... An institution into herself. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, it, it came out that, you know, Totenberg was actually like very good friends with her, maybe more so than people realized, which led to a lot of uh, public outcry and, and she got criticism from NPR's public editor about it. And so she's put out this book, think it's supposed to be like an answer to those to those criticisms it's about like the power of friendship right like that's like the byline of, of the book right yeah or something like that it's like yeah. the secondary title
2: sorry what's the book called
1: let's get the full name <laughs> dinners with ruth
2: oh my god
3: <laughs> michael is fucking
2: right now,
3: dude. <laughs>
1: <laughs> dinners with ruth A Memoir on the Power of Friendships, guys. Dinners
2: with Ruth. (laughs) (laughs) How can you call yourself a fucking journalist? right? And and
1: so she goes over how she's friends with like a lot of judges and justices, including infamously Antonin Scalia, uh, a conservative, right? The results of this are these like horrible anecdotes that came out, you know, including one where like she had Scalia over for dinner, a dinner party right after a big gun decision came down where the Supreme Court like created this new individual right to bear arms and to have a handgun, basically. And, you know, her husband put little plastic toy guns in all their soups at the dinner party.
3: <laughs> isn't that so funny? Yeah,
1: isn't that so <laughs> funny? It's been getting fucking creamed. The book. The book. Yeah. And a sign of, like, a, a correction that's going on in media... Slowly, the book is getting panned, right? Like Politico, which is not a left-wing institution by any stretch of the imagination, had a long opinion piece, sort of wondering, like, "Hey, might like a little more honesty uh, from Nina Totenberg it changed like literally the outcome of the 2016 election if people like she was privy to information about Ginsburg's health that other people weren't, mm-hmm. and and maybe." If you know the poor state of her health had been more widely known, uh, maybe the election would have gone differently. There was another anecdote in the book about how Ginsburg really wanted to be replaced by the first female president. There's a little bit of information that, like maybe, maybe if that come out 2012 and 2013, that like you know the reason why she's not retiring is not out of any sort of principle or belief that Obama can't replace her with a capable jurist, but this sort of fairy tale diva idea that she would get to be replaced by a female president right
2: Just like a symbolic spectacle
3: right right Yes, exactly. it's purely an aesthetic, right?
1: Maybe that whole narrative around her her staying on the court would have been different and maybe she would have retired. Mm-hmm. Maybe Nina Totenberg could have saved Roe v. Wade, right? <laughs> like in, yeah. in, like in a literal sense, like yeah. these things could have changed history, right? And and she prioritized her friendship with Ginsburg over her, you know, duty to her listeners and her her readers, right? To NPR's audience, and I think you see a lot of that in the media now is prioritizing their relationships and their sources, yeah, over their audience. But it's good to see. Like at least some reckoning with that. Uh, Jeet here also wrote in the Nation, excoriating Totenberg about this, and, and she's been getting a lot of criticism about it, mm-hmm. and and saying people saying she made the wrong choice, right? Yeah, <laughs> which which yeah. I think she did.
3: Yeah, Godam Hans had a piece in Balls and Strikes, which was a really good review of of Dinners with Ruth. He says, quote, Dinners with Ruth works through an identity crisis in real time. Is it a biography, a memoir or yet another spine on the shelf of Supreme Court behind the curtain books Mm -hmm. as the book caroms among biographical sketches under detailed anecdotes and surface level Supreme Court case summaries? Don't read this if you want expert legal analysis, let alone a mea culpa for the years Totenberg spent reporting on people she was also inviting to dinner parties. Do remember to bring an insulin shot for the treacle.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Totenberg is sort of like this looming vestige of the old media class. Yes. And a symbol, I think, of how no matter how much it seems like the mainstream media has evolved over the last couple of years, the dominant institutions the dominant journalists are still the ones that misunderstood the nature of the court and the law for decades, Mm -hmm. right? This is just egregious. I mean, with access journalism, you know, there's always this tricky ethical balance. And Michael, you were hinting at this, right? You want the scoop, but you also want to maintain your access, which is hard if you cover your subject critically. And yet your sort of journalistic obligation Mm -hmm. is that you cover them critically, right? So it's common that access journalists get too cozy with the people they're covering, and the coverage itself suffers. But Totenberg's problem was bigger than that, because she also makes it clear that she was in the dark about some major news items, right? RBG never told her that Obama met with her privately and pressed her to retire. Mm -hmm. So not only is Totenberg too close to her, but she's not getting the access that the closeness is supposed to bring. Which makes it seem a little bit less like mm-hmm. access journalism and more like Totenberg was maybe getting played by someone who was considerably savvier than yeah her.
1: yeah. And so I think just to to tack on to the balls and strikes review, it, it, you know, Rhiannon mentioned that like the the anecdotes are like undeveloped, and I think a lot of that you know a lot of the weakness from this comes from the fact that like there are definitely stories in this book that Totenberg wouldn't have told if Ginsburg were still alive, right? but for the most part, those details are revealed in order to make Ginsburg look good, to make her look brave, to make her look like she's persevering through a difficult time to try to get through the Trump administration and, and things like that. She's still not revealing anything negative. She's still not giving a full picture. This isn't an honest accounting, right? This is a hagiography of her friend, right? She's still prioritizing her friendship to Ginsburg over an honest accounting Mm -hmm. for her audience.
2: Yeah. Before we wrap, I think it's probably worth talking a little bit about another change in Supreme Court media coverage, which is the sort of rise of alternative left and liberal media covering the court. That's us, but it's also Mm -hmm. a collection of other podcasts. You have people like Ali Mistal for The Nation. Slate's court coverage is miles ahead of where it was just a few years Mm -hmm. ago. Balls and strikes. Yeah, balls and strikes, right. And I think the presence of that alternative media has helped shape the discourse and put some stakes in the ground, right? I don't want to give us too much credit, but I don't want to give us none. If you don't have people on the left talking about court packing, you probably don't get the Washington Post calling for term limits, right? That's right. You need someone to set one side of the Overton window to sort of establish the boundaries of the discussion. And you know, I, I think that there are a lot of people, especially in elite circles, in political circles, media circles that absorb this sort of information and it's changed the way they think about the court over the last couple of years. And you see that sort of trickle into mainstream newsrooms. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what are you doing next week?
1: Next week, we're doing the independent state legislature ooh, doctrine, baby. Ooh,
2: bit of a special episode on the independent state legislature theory the theory that may or may not completely upend election laws in this country. May, according to folks like us, and may not, according to uh, election law professors on Twitter.
1: This feels very familiar to the conversation around Roe v. Wade. That's right. About 12 months ago. <laughs>
2: it does. So, yeah, I don't mean to give spoilers, but we're right. <laughs> and it's not because we know more about election law. No. <laughs>
3: we live in the world
2: it's, it's because we're not responding to uh scam text messages <laughs> a nigerian prince needs my help <laughs> a beautiful 22 year old <laughs> wants to talk to me uh, thanks for subscribing to our patreon follow us on twitter at 54 pod we'll see you next week
1: five to four is presented by prologue projects rachel ward is our producer Leon Nafok, and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. What's the word I? What's the word I want to use here? Sorry. I also, I think I took two Vivants this morning because I went to the gym at like 6.30.
3: Holy shit. Are you just like grinding your teeth right now? <laughs> I,
1: I took a Vivance I think, at like 6.15 a.m. And then again at like 8.30 when I got home and I was like, I don't think I took one this morning. And so now I'm like,
0: shit. <laughs> um,
1: sorry.